Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 55 for January 2016. That's right, 2016, a shiny new year uh, without all the dirty smudges from last year, hopefully. Uh, I am your co-host number one, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always, co-host number two, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? Oh, I'm doing all right, Quinn. I think this is the first time I've been sober this year. How about you? <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm working on uh, some sobriety this year as well. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's co- not in the uh, formal sense, but sure, uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm recovering from the holidays. Mm. And uh, did you uh, did you get any retro computing done over the break? Um, I did. I, I picked up a a Pi two B, the Raspberry Pi two B, and loaded that with uh, Ivan's um, A two server, and and uh, so I have a little. Um, a little Apple II server that I can download disk images from and stuff like that. So that's a lot of fun. I've been playing around with that. And nice. yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. And um, I'm trying to think there was something. Oh, and, and I got a, uh, my, my parents got me one of those um, quote retro uh, Pac-Man LED clocks. It's kind of fun. So. Ah, very cool. What about you? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I did get some uh, some stuff done. I um, so the big thing for me was I committed this time because uh, I was going to be home in Canada, which uh, <laughs> is is not a common occurrence. So I committed this time. I'm going to do some stuff that has to get done. So I brought uh, a much larger suitcase than I would normally bring <laughs> and uh, left it two thirds empty. And uh, I then. Uh, as soon as my uh, mom wasn't looking, I snuck down to the basement and started uh, digging through boxes. And uh, not that she would mind, of course. She would love it if I would get rid of all my crap from her basement. Yeah. Uh, but I dug uh, I dug way down in the bottom, and I found uh, the box with my 2GS in it. And uh, I was not I did not have enough room to bring it home, unfortunately. Oh, but no. I, uh, <laughs> I Yeah, but I did crack it open and cut the battery off. So well, that's uh, okay. I've... Yes, one more GS saved, uh, and luckily there was no leakage. Actually, it looked uh, brand new under there, so now, now it will stay that way. Did you find uh, Charles's two GS and Randy's two GS and Carrington's two GS down there as well? Yeah, yeah, I made a little fort uh, <laughs> at one point uh, of two GSs, uh, so it was yeah, it was good. I had some fun. Is your mom's forwarding uh, those I, uh, things? Yes, that's right. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't get that joke, last time, uh, last episode of Open Apple, we we learned that my mom is apparently hoarding everyone's two GSs. <laughs> uh, she's she's cornering the 2GS market for some strange reason. Right. Uh, let's see. I guess she figures it drew my attention for so many years. And <laughs> there must be something to these things. Uh, let's see. And then uh, the other big mission I accomplished was I rescued all of my five and a quarter inch floppies. I think all of them because nice. I actually have a collection of Apple II floppies. And uh, apologies in advance. I have a collection of Commodore 64 floppies. Boo, Quinn. Boo. And, uh, yeah, yeah, those I just I just kind of rolled around in and got them all dirty and <laughs> just, you know, used them to line the waste bin. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's all the Commodore ones, but I think I got all the Apple II ones, more importantly. <laughs> and uh, it took, it was it was a heroic effort, but I managed to get all of them into my luggage, uh, including one of the carrying cases and uh, my external Laser 128 floppy drive, uh, which, of course, I needed to read them. Because weirdly, I have an Apple II at home and no way to read five and a quarter inch floppy disks. <laughs> so uh, having only an Apple II C plus at the moment oh, yeah, and no external right. drive, uh, yeah, I had no way to read them. <laughs> so I needed to bring that home too. And I managed to do that. And uh, so I've started uh, going through them a little bit. It's been great fun. Uh, and I wrote a blog post about that. I go through and uh, 
clean up the floppy drive and uh, you know tune it up a little bit and uh, start playing with some uh, some old discs. So there's some real gems in there which I'm looking forward to uh, blogging about. So cool. Uh, that's my yeah. That was my little uh, success story for the holidays. All right. Uh, well, um, yeah, I guess that kind of wraps up for for me for what's been happening since the last episode. Um, shall we move on? Yeah, I think we've spent enough time pretending we like each other, right? so mm -hmm. let's yep. roll into our interview here. So uh, <laughs> with us uh, this month is uh, Henry Corbis of Ultimate Micro. Say hello, Henry. Hello, Henry. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, and let me say uh, thanks for the honor of being able to share this time with both of you, and thanks to everybody for listening. And let me first apologize for a recent cold, my occasional, hopefully very occasional coughing, but uh, no excuse for my monotone speaking or lack of eloquence. But nonetheless, thanks for having me on. <laughs> uh, I'm sure your audio quality can only improve this show, so not to worry. Uh-oh. If I, if I hear you cough once, I'm kicking you off the show, oh, Henry. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think we've been a bit remiss by, uh, by not having you on the show yet. Uh, Ultimate Micro has been very active lately and, uh, both, you know, with developing products and, um, perhaps even with, reactive, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, bottom bump, uh, that joke, that joke will make sense in a minute. Uh, and you've also been active, uh, in the community, um, you know, publishing open source, uh, designs and documentation and so on. So, um, uh, maybe get uh, get us started here by telling us a little bit of the uh, history of Ultimate Micro. Well, Ultimate Micro more or less started as Reactive Micro, which kind of started as Reactive Corporation, Reactive Computers, and basically went through a few incarnations over the years, uh, different businesses, and ultimately, Auntie and I, in the last year and a half, I would say, kind of been going full force. Uh, me a little more. Anthony still got a square job. I'm doing this thing full time and kind of seeing it where it takes. Really? Me. Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's impressive. Yeah, that's, considering yeah, you're, that's you're basically <laughs> you're you're relying on the 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 pockets of of a, a retro hobbyist community. That's that's great that you're able to it's, do that. Well, again, it's an experiment. Kind of see where it goes. I've always liked to kind of see and try new endeavors and learn new things. Yeah, well, there. I think you. I mean, I don't think it's so crazy. I mean, there is uh, a sizable and growing Apple II fan base. You know, there's more people on Apple II enthusiasts, uh, the Facebook group all the time, and you know, Kansas Fest attendance has been rising dramatically. And uh, you know, Apple Apple people have a lot of money, as we all know. So uh, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I think you're right. I, I know. Uh, last couple of times I got a chance to speak with Vince Briel at K Fest. He said the same thing that everything seems to be growing. He's doing it full-time as well, I believe, with the Apple kit. I think he's also doing some other side projects as well, besides the Apple and the hobby stuff. But he said he's making enough, basically, to, to feed himself, which in any hobby market is amazing, in my opinion. Yeah, that's that's really great. Uh, let's let's go back a little bit further for a minute. Uh, your, your personal history with the Apple II, when was the first time you got to play with one, and, and why did you choose that instead of Buatari or Commodore? Well, back through the mists of time, uh, Little Henry was definitely into computer games. Uh, the Atari 2600, I think my parents were a little late, but I want to say they got one like 1981. And <clears throat> I was always into the arcade games, but having a home unit, something I didn't have to get on my bike and ride many miles to the 7-Eleven that had a little room with uh, four or five games in it, or to the... Malibu up the road that was 10 miles by bike was a nightmare as you know, an eight-year-old. <laughs> and then trying to feed quarters into the machine because 
a quarter was a lot of money to a kid back then. So uh, basically got in touch with Apple IIs in school. I want to say it was 84. And in third grade, they rolled in a couple Apples and they even had a 2C, if I remember correctly. And Franklin's, and it was like, wow, you could put a disc in. I was used to cartridges, and you could put a disc in, and it's got a keyboard. You could type on this. Like, there's programming languages, and the teacher uh, was a little bit versed in programming, and we could do 10 print hello run kind of thing. And little GR graphics, we gave us a little graph paper, and we draw little graphics. So, quite an early age, I guess, compared to some people born in the 70s. Got a little taste of it in school. And it wasn't until the summer of 85, I believe, where my father and I were looking for something to do one weekend. And I said, let's go fix your motorcycle. We haven't been on the bike in a while. And I'm probably 11. And he's like, well, what if we got a computer? And I'm just like looking at him with puppy dog eyes like, really? (laughs) Like my whole world just shattered. (laughs) What do you mean? We're going to get a computer? (laughs) This is Christmas in July. Come on. And we did. We went to the local computer place, and it was the most money I've ever seen my parents spend on anything. I want to say it was like thirty-five or thirty-six hundred dollars. And he's yeah, signed the little receipt, and off we went with a two E and a green screen and a image writer and one or two little software programs. I think Choplifter and a typing program, a copy, copy and paste or something, and went home, set it up, and it kind of been addicted ever since. And, of course, the the problem was, I quickly ran into, unlike the 2600, not everybody had an Apple. So, where do you get wares? <laughs> so, that occasionally my aunt who, yeah, what's Where's, that? What's that? So, you could save up all your money, which I found out to be very tedious. And as a kid, we always worked. We were shoveling snow. I was relatively entrepreneurial. There was a golf course nearby. We'd always walk around, walk with the dog, find golf balls. I would get sodas at the local Acme and sell sodas and golf balls on the golf course on the weekends and try and make some kind of money. Because games are like $40 and up, and a joystick was like $45 and up. So you needed all these things for your Apple. So uh, unfortunately, it kind of pushed me to be a, a little more entrepreneurial than I would have liked to have been, I guess, at 11 or 12. And then in 1987, a friend of mine in school gave me a 300 BPS telephonics manual everything modem. And it was a nightmare trying to connect. Again, 1987. Uh, most bulletin boards were 12 to 2400. There were a few that were 300. And this is, you know, I'm 14 at the time or so and we're in middle school and we're talking back and forth and somebody mentioned freaking and it's like well, what's this so i uh, found a system it was a local rca system hopefully the statute of limitations are up on this local rca system uh run by <laughs> something with martin marietta i want to say and basically you could call in at 300 baud and you could dial out to other systems. And usually you would connect at the same speed. Otherwise, you would get all kinds of errors. But you could call at 1,200. So I could actually call some BBSs at 1,200, which was like the minimum requirement to even get on some of the boards, the cool ones that you wanted to. And then I would tell my friend, look, when you get a chance, download these games. I found this at this board. I found this at this board. Give me a copy when you get a chance. So we had this kind of half 
network, half sneaker net kind of system set up, and he got tired of that real quick. <laughs> but I got a few more games that way, so I was more than addicted at that point. And then my parents had divorced a few years before, and in 1988, I think my dad's revenge on my mom was to give me a Prometheus 2400 baud modem. <laughs> and that phone bill, <laughs> yeah, that phone bill got very expensive, <laughs> uh, unbeknownst to me. And uh, uh, my mom definitely had issues when I figured everything in my area code would be free. No, that's not how it worked back then. <laughs> so, yeah, so then we ended up getting scopes, if you remember those on the phones. So I could call certain boards, but that was only good for like 20 hours. After that, it was just anything I could do to get uh, 800 PBXs to kind of freak off of or trade stuff. Uh, so I had a bit of a nefarious uh, career here in Apple too, as far as to feed my wares habits. You know, I, I didn't do a whole lot of hacking or cracking necessarily, but uh, there was a little bit here and there. But it was mostly just what could I do to get the next game. I think I think that life story pretty much uh, is a Good analogy for every single listener of this show, probably. I think that's uh, surprisingly similar to my own story. <laughs> now, how did yeah. you? How did you, as a, a phone freaker and wares downloader, um, get into to the hardware side of things? Because that that seems to be, you know, it's it's easy to sit down with a book on on sixty five hundred two assembly or assembly or basic and and kind of start tapping away. But it seems like it's a, a bigger jump or maybe an investment or whatever to actually you know produce hardware, which is what you're doing with Ultimate Micro. Well, absolutely. Um... I think Dan Pote, who owned AE, said that if he could do it all over again, that he would uh, definitely have gone the software route. Uh, however, I've never been much of a programmer. Uh, those chips with the magic smoke in them, they still kind of confound me. I'm really just a hack. Um, so programming was just, and you needed the books, and you needed time, and to make a game is hours and hours of time. I'm a dummy. I'm not going to sit there and spend weekends when I could be playing uh, Choplifter. <laughs> why, why am I going to do that? <laughs> so the one thing that did kind of push me a little into hardware early on was you know, I got my 1200 or 2400 baud modem and I'm calling around and the 2E had the old character set. Unbeknownst to me, my 2E had weird issues occasionally with some games. I could never figure out why. And today I can look back and say, oh, it was unenhanced. I had no idea what the difference was. You know, but... With the unenhanced character set, I did have mouse text, which I found very odd. I think the place that we took it back to to get it enhanced didn't do it correctly. <laughs> but I I had mouse text, uh, but the F and the G characters weren't right. So anytime I logged on to a bulletin board that used mouse text, like Metal, and there was uh, ACOS, uh, I'm trying to remember, GBBS, a couple of them guys with mods used mouse text for the menus, which was amazing back then. I couldn't believe you went from ASCII not to menu systems. It was amazing. And the, the mouse text wasn't correct on the 2E. It was different on the GS and different on the, the 2C. So I, I found a friend who kind of had an idea how to fix this, and he helped me a little bit. He actually wrote a little program where I could display the characters, and I went in and created ultimately what became Reactive Text, which is in the download section at Reactive Micro. If you want to burn your own ROM and see what I did, I, I changed a cursor to be a blinking apple. I changed the fonts to kind of match my 286 at the time. I was transitioning a little bit. This is like 1990, I want to say. I was transitioning to the PC a little bit when I interned at a place. And I ended up fixing 
my little modem issue uh, with the mouse text. So I was kind of like, wow, this is really neat. I actually understood what I did, which was the first in computers. Even with programming, it was just kind of like you hit 10 print. I didn't know why it did it. It just did it. But now I could actually see with the EEPROM, oh, I burned it at work. I could uh, change the different code and change the text on the screen. Like, wow, this is kind of neat. And that always kind of stuck with me. And I wanted to sell it. And, of course, Apple with Franklin with the lawsuit wouldn't let anybody sell any Apple firmware. So I couldn't sell this little upgrade ROM. So I boo on Apple. And at the time, this was about 91, I was interning at high school. I was never very good at school. And just doing very poorly. And the counselor kind of said, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, playing computers. He's like, well, that's not going to be very possible. But maybe I can get you a job at a computer company, like sweeping the floor. And I'm like, sold. Because I'll somehow work magic and talk my way up into the tech room I guess I don't know I'm 16 I'm a dumb kid I don't know any better and he went around a bunch of the Apple places trying to find me a job and none of them would give me a job I was very surprised even offering the work for free and one place we bought the Apple from years later I went back and was like really you don't want to give me a job working for free like I bought an Apple from you at least you could just let me clean your floor and take out the trash so he ended up finding a job for me at a PC repair place, and I've kind of been a Windows PC guy ever since. I kind of gave Apple the middle finger. I kind of threw the, the Apple in the closet for a while, and just the games were amazing. There were soundboards and all this kind of stuff, and I, I was not really getting any money, but I had a little bit from other entrepreneurial things at the time, like shoveling snow and mowing grass. I had a few bucks here and there, and I ended up just salvaging a 286 kind of going that route and I ended up giving away my 2e which I regret to this day I ended up giving it to a friend of mine who gave it to his friend and it kind of got lost in the annals of history unfortunately and I started my own business and that's kind of kind of where we ended up here uh, so what brought you back to the Apple II then well uh, running my business uh, up until about 2001 I was doing a, a few different things kind of started early on uh, writing accounting software with a buddy of mine who actually gave me the modem. <clears throat> and then uh, we ended up selling that to a bunch of little places. It was kind of Quicken before there was Quicken, basically. And I was surprised I kind of understood accounting, uh, having no formal training in math, failing out of school, basically, and just kind of understood once the person, this guy's wife, ran a paper, these guys ran a paper mill, and the guy's wife did all the books for these different companies, and she explained all the accounting stuff. And he and I went, wow, I kind of get this. And I was helping him lay it out. And we, we made a few bucks. I was really surprised. And that kind of got me going in business. And we flipped that money. Uh, we ended up getting in the pay phones for a little while. I started going the IT route. Uh, he and I ended up splitting up. Uh, he just was the kind of guy that took a check and wouldn't return phone calls. And I was getting tired of lawsuits coming in. So I was like, see you later. Hey. He's still in federal prison right now, I believe, but yeah, yeah <laughs> wow. he did some bad okay. stuff, <laughs> wow. but uh, you can Google that and check those stories out. But anyway, so I continued on with the IT route and got into different things over the years besides IT. Uh, business consulting, I like the idea, you can work for your own business, but it, you, you can do more working on your business. So I set up little networks where I would hook up eight or ten different little IT companies and we would do mass advertising and we could kind of broker work back and forth. So I could go, hey, I've got a job for you up in Paramus, and I'm in South Jersey. And if I sell you this job, give me like 10% on it. So we'd end up making money back and forth, just finding jobs from marketing and stuff. And it, it was pretty good up until the tech crash. 
the whole economy and everything, the IT bubble back in 2001 with 9-11, I don't think the economy, a lot of economists even say we haven't recovered from it yet, really. And I, I kind of see that here and there. We've had the housing bubble as well, so we're still kind of in the doldrums. But in 2001, I'd spent a lot of money in advertising in a few different businesses, not just my IT business, but in the IT business in particular, I spent like $30,000 in advertising for three months and I couldn't get the phone to ring once. Nobody was buying hardware. Nobody was upgrading their networks. Windows had nothing new out. <clears throat> there was no driving force in the industry. Novell was starting to kind of be toppled at that point. It was just an odd time. So I, I've always been very dynamic. Nothing is static. I'll try something new. It, it's always kind of been what I do, who I am kind of thing. I'm a, I'm a maverick kind of like that. So I was like, let's try business consulting, which I'd done a little bit in the past. So I would come in with different companies and seeing a lot of small companies. One thing, running your own company and dealing in services, you deal a lot in a lot of other companies' accounting and software and networks. And you kind of see the inner workings of their business. So I came in and started business consulting. Hey, I can show you how to make more money here, how to switch over your phone service, how to get better electric rates, and give me a piece of this. And ultimately, I would come in as a as an employee or a hiree or consultant, whatever they wanted to call me. And ultimately, when I'd left, they fired me. That was my goal, to fire myself, essentially. But I'd set up some companies, even new management for them, and just find the right guys. A lot of guys know their core, know how to run a business, potentially, know their product, usually. But they lack all the other details. And that's kind of where I was able to fill them in a little bit. Just having the experience over the years. I did closed circuit TV was another thing during this time of 2001 to kind of 2005-ish. Um, got into CCTV trying to program uh, the recording units to do certain things, to prompt messages for maintenance, to show my logo, things that nobody, few people even do today. These are just marketing things. These are basic core concepts of business that I don't know, people just don't do or haven't thought of. It's odd. Got into flipping homes. I've always been very good with my hands. I probably would have been a diesel mechanic or something like that had it not been for transistors and computers. But I liked air conditioning and sitting at a desk or under a desk, maybe I should say, fixing stuff. So it just kind of worked. Um, and then late 2005, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm kind of hustling here and there. And I had a dream, I remember, about a RAM factor board. And it struck me as really odd. And it stuck with me for a few days. Yeah, I had a RAM factor. My buddy who gave me the modem gave me his RAM factor board for a little while. And having something solid state to download to, unlike a floppy disk, was really cool and fast. And it was 768K. We couldn't afford a full meg. It was huge. <laughs> so I could download five wares at a time. I could do some serious leeching back in the day. And I had a dream about the board. And I always, I always remembered wondering like how RAM chips worked. And this just stuck with me for a while. And after a couple months, it just it didn't die. It didn't go away. I kept thinking about it. And I'm like, you know what? I've always wanted to kind of learn a little bit more about electronics. I, I took electronics course in high school, but I got it. I'm again, it's like programming. I'm I'm not very good with kind of thinking about. It. I have to physically see it. I have to do it in order to learn it. So I kind of got into electronics a little bit, trying to get an old Apple. I can actually understand, I think, from the EEPROM days what was going on. So let me get an old Apple. So I got some old 2Es, and I think I got a GS on eBay. And this stuff was still pretty cheap back then. And I really have to give a big shout-out to uh, Washington Apple Pie 
down in uh, Maryland. Uh, somebody posted in one of the news groups not too long after I kind of got back into things that uh, they were giving away a lot of stuff, just cleaning out their closets. And I went down and met a really nice guy by the name of Lauren who kind of pointed me to some of the finer points of stuff. And I think I mentioned K-Fest and I got a truckload of stuff, which it, some of it was really rare stuff. I had no idea. I was still kind of getting into it. I wanted to pull these things apart. I didn't want to play with transwarps. I wanted to pull these things apart and learn how the magic smoke does what it does. And ultimately, that's more or less how I got started and kind of went into, after that, uh, soundboard a little bit, trying to study the mockingboard, the transwarp ultimately, trying to study how that works. And I'm just a schmuck in a basement. I'm a hack. I have no formal training. Really, beyond, like, I can tell you how a transistor works on the atomic level. I can't tell you what happens when you get ten of them together and why a calculator works. But, eh, that's kind of what I'm hoping to learn. Now, at what point did you hook up with Anthony? Anthony being Anthony Martino, the ultimate in, in ultimatemicro.com. Ah, yes, Anthony. Well, I've always been big in collaboration and open source. Uh, one of the things I found kind of studying the Apple IIe early on was uh, programmable logic. I understood like how an LSO4 worked and okay, it's this little piece of silicon, it's got these couple transistors on it, this makes this not gate and here we go. Uh, okay, I can understand that. Now what about programmable logic? You're telling me I can write a code to it? Well maybe it's similar to an EEPROM and the Apple IIe just happened to have one in it. So I was like, perfect. I can write code, I can test stuff and ultimately maybe change it, make it do something I wanted to do. That was kind of cool. <laughs> like just a chip you buy off the shelf. So I've, I've always kind of been in the open source and studying the PALS and um, collaboration mainly and kind of led me down the path where I met Bill Garber uh, who helped with the Mockingboard and dual character generator um, and selling stuff. I'm starting to get a little more into the hobby and I need more equipment and stuff. But I, I, again, I've kind of abandoned my old jobs at this point. Like I, I also need some income. Maybe I'll try and sell a few of these things. And uh, through him, I met Joachim Lang with the microdrive, started selling those. So it actually made a few bucks. I was surprised I could kind of sit on my butt, tinker all day and learn and collaborate with a few people and, and make some money too. Like this is weird. I didn't think the world worked this way, but okay, this is cool. I'm getting into this. So Bill was kind of the first guy, and then Anthony Martino of UltimateApple2.com uh, came around. I want to say Bill was like 2006, and Anthony was like 2007. As, and he called me about a microdrive, and he wanted he had some questions about his GS, and he had an old AE, uh, what was the board that ran DOS, uh, transporter, he had an old AE transporter, and had questions, where can I get this, where can I get that, I was kind of prevalent in the news groups back then so i actually had to in on some of the stuff i could tell them go here look here these guys are selling it that kind of thing and in 2007 uh, we put together the 3.5 drive controller it was just on my list of things to do he said yeah let's get a few of these boards and we'll figure out how this thing works and possibly roll it into something else and sell it and i was like cool so it kind of went from buying a power supply and a microdrive into funding projects so my kind of buddy <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, and then part of the collaboration as well. Remember uh, Ferdinand Mayor Herman? We met him in 2008. Of uh, he came to K Fest 2009 of VGA fame. He's the one that created the 
I want to say one of the first, if not the first, Apple II VGA solutions for the 2E and 2C. And at that point, we, Anthony and I released the 3.5 drive controller. Um, I still did my thing. Anthony kind of did his thing still. Uh, we collaborated with Jeff Weiss with the Mega Memory Tester. We had basically commissioned him and said, look, we're, we're planning on making some memory cards at some point. We need a way to test them. Like, I need to know. I'm still learning what I don't know about what I don't know. And this would help. He said, cool. So we wrote Mega Memory Tester, basically. Uh, Tom Arnold of philosophyofsound.com. Uh, he's helped with the Mockingboard uh, V1A, basically. Uh, Dagan Brock, who's of Dagan Brock fame. Flappy Bird, Mini Memory Tester, specifically. <laughs> and hopefully, 64K cache board. He's Dagan, yeah. We all kind he's of Dagan. Um, so I like collaborating with these guys. That's kind of how Anthony and I got together. Um, other guys, uh, Jeff Boddy. He's helped with the Transwarp GS schematic. I just happened to, as I started to come back kind of full force, uh, he came up, uh, I met him online and said, yeah, I'm working on Transwarp schematics. Like, ooh, I can help you there. Hold on. <laughs> so we're collaborating with him. Uh, Gabriel Gorla of GG Labs. Uh, if you do a search on eBay uh, out there in internet land, uh, he's got a lot of neat projects. Uh, it's for sale. Go check that out. Support him. Uh, Ko... Ichi Nishida, if I'm sure I'm screwing that up, of Nishida Radio Chapter 3. Nishida Radio, yep. Yeah, if you do a search for Nishida Radio Chapter 3 out there, you'll see his website. I'm not even going to try. It's 100 characters long. <laughs> he needs to work on his website. I've yelled at him a few times, but collaborated back and forth with him a little bit as far as, hey, we got new projects coming out. Be forewarned. Don't go nuts. The, hey, here's some ideas. Can you help us here kind of thing. Uh, Playman as well in Bulgaria. Uh, sorry, buddy, I can't pronounce your last name. I'm not even going to try. But no one can. No one can, I know. It's got weird R's and everything. So uh, Apple2Haven.com, uh, support him as well. He's a great guy. Uh, he and I have been back and forth a few times over Facebook and email of, hey, I've got this idea, this, try this. Hey, by the way, I've got this coming out, be forewarned. So there's no reason to compete, basically, that I can see in this, such a small community. So we're always... I've always at least tried to keep in touch with these guys and let them know, hey, we've got a memory card coming out. Hey, we've got a transwarp coming out. Hey, I don't know what you have in the pipeline, but be forewarned. Here's what's coming out. If you're dumping a million dollars into it, don't. You know, be forewarned, please. Uh, lately, uh, Nate Hartwell, who's helped in the past with the GS uh, Rex Plus project, which was kind of the first incarnation of the memory board. And he had some ideas. I had some ideas and ultimately became the 8 meg RAM card. And hopefully he's working on the GS ROM option. If you're listening out there, Nate, I'm going to be pestering you in the next coming weeks here. What's going on with that? Um, John Morris, uh, he's helping us with the power supply project. Ultimately, we'd like to have a, a user replaceable unit where you could just open up your power supply, cut a few lines, take your screwdriver, unscrew the board, screw new stuff down, put it back together, you're done. It, there needs to be something out there. Things are just dying like crazy. John can't resolder everybody's caps on his power supply <laughs> he's going to lose his fingers eventually working so hard so john's been quite the trooper out there and he's done some great work if you need some power supplies or uh, rebuild definitely find him in news groups or contact me with email and i'll point you in the right direction but hopefully we'll have a power supply in the near future here yeah xander mass we've collaborated with him he's uh, hopefully helping with a programmable breadboard he wanted to learn about eproms and flash and how to rewrite things and he found a circuit on the cffa and said "Ooh, this is neat i'd like to learn how to write to eproms using this circuit so he played around with it and he's going to lend us his circuit 
and basically will put out kind of a continuation of the 8-bit system little proto 2 that'll have an options for programmable logic could be a couple small gals could be a cpld it's going to be a little option that you'll kind of push onto the board you can program in any way you want you have built-in flash uh, probably a 64k or 128k of flash you can write to anything you want just run this little program and boom off it goes we'll probably do a menu system for it so you could easily put your program in rom and run it and hopefully that'll spur on some more tinkering in the community. If a programmer, maybe Dagan could write his little program and they go, hey, I could make it blink LEDs. And then maybe that'll start him into the evil world of hardware, convert him to the dark side. And guys like Broad, uh, Dit Broad, uh, or Brit Dodd, I'm sorry, uh, with the 2E kit, we're hoping to have something there. Uh, preferably for this KFest, I don't think it's going to happen, but uh, kind of like uh, what they did with the Apple One kits, basically, but in a 2E form. Maybe it goes inside your case, maybe it doesn't. We're still kind of fleshing this out a little bit. It's still in its infancy, unfortunately. So I don't think anything's really going to happen this year that way. But ultimately, I like to collaborate. I like to keep things open source. And that's how Antti and I met, to kind of get back to the original question. So uh, you touched on the Transwarp there. Uh, that's certainly probably the most, uh, the recent product that you guys are most famous for, uh, for cloning that. That was you know, long thought in the community to be sort of unclonable. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about the development of that? And, and uh, you sort of guys sort of jumped into the deep end there, taking on one of the most difficult things to clone. Uh, how, did, how did that go? Well, contrary to popular belief, probably one of the most boring, easiest things I've ever worked on. I mean, just uh, when I uh, basically I found... They go back a little bit. Back in 2005, I found a programmer online that claimed, an actual IC programmer, not a person, uh, a piece of hardware that claimed uh, by this Chinese company. So the transa translation to English was uh, very bad at, at best. It claimed to be able to read protected gals. And I said, no way, because I've been trying to study how gals work. I'm going to buy one of these. It's a few hundred bucks. I could invest that into my education. So I, I bought one, and sure enough, it's able to read some copy protected gals and usually with the gal programmable logic device it's a gate array logic gal uh, you can write a little code you can tell it how to do stuff with the inputs and how to do stuff with the outputs and essentially program them any way you want and it can save you a lot of real estate a lot of chips a lot of cost on your pcb and your, on your design and it's also copy protectable so you can really protect your design if i just make a computer and it's all regular chips Anybody can copy it. But when Apple put their little pal in there, they kind of made it a little harder for somebody to copy. You could figure out what it does, but it's you're going to stop about 80% of people <laughs> right there, just done. I don't know if they did that specifically. They had other custom chips in the 2E, but that was one thing that kind of stopped them. Same with the, the 2C had some of these custom chips in it as well, programmable chips in it as well. So when I copied or broke basically the gals on the transwarp again being an open source kind of guy i put him out in the public saying hey this can be useful this i'm starting to get higher speeds on some of these boards wow i'm not really into this but somebody else take it and run with it and to my amazement nobody really did i mean we're, i'm kind of when i got into apple i kind of looked at commodore and said wow i'm a very small fish in a big pond here we got uh, some 
big names out here that are tinkering, creating C1s and things. And I was like, wow, I'm not going to be able to compete with this. Forget that. And I looked at Altair and I met a guy out there who's cloning Altair. So, okay, this is kind of done. And I went in another direction, looked at like Amigas and went, wow, these guys know what the heck they're doing in Amigas too. Jeez. I looked at Apple and went, oh, there's really not much going on in Apple. I think I'm going to get involved here. If I ever did a business, it would be interesting to be, you know, I'd rather be a big fish in a small pond than a small fish in a big pond, obviously. So when I released the gals, it was a little bit of testing water, a little bit of, hey, look at me kind of thing. But I assumed somebody would do something with it. And nobody really did for years. I mean, this is 2006 that they have been released. And nobody's done anything with it since. So when Anthony and I kind of came back off of our hiatus, uh, we looked and said, hey, you know, somebody in the news group was selling stuff and ended up being kind of a shyster and taking money and not returning phone calls, which so I've dealt with that in the past. And he's like, can we do this? I'm like, yeah, although this is really boring. Like anybody can clone the Transwarp. I did the hard part. The, the code's out there. That's the only thing that really would have stopped somebody from cloning it. You got these protected gals. You can get them copied in places like China, but they're hundreds of dollars each. So maybe it would have been a thousand dollars. But you would have gotten the code back eventually. But cloning the board, really, we did nothing. All I did was pull chips off a board, so it was a bare board. We send it off to a company uh, that basically sands the board, and they scan it as they do it, so they get the fresh board from us. They'll scan the silkscreen layer, which is all the markings on the board, and then they create a, a file off of that, CAD file, uh, called a Gerber file, and then they sand it down they expose the first copper layer and they'll scan that and create this gerber file again this cad file and they sand the next layer and they keep doing this for all five layers of the board and when they're done you pay them your few hundred bucks and they send you back all the, the gerber files all we did was send the gerber files to the production house and say hey we'll take 10 of these thanks and they send us back in my years for those 10 years that had passed at that point and fixing transwarps and starting to get an understanding of this chip kind of controls this this chip kind of does this i have no schematic that was jeff body as i mentioned earlier he really started the schematic project and we kind of helped him finish giving him all the cad files like look we have all the buried traces we could tell you where things go he was going through it with a multi-eater doing it by hand i'm just shaking my head like what a nut this is a huge undertaking <laughs> there's a hundred some odd components on the board. He's tracing them out by hand and all of them have like 15 or 20 pins minimally. That's thousands of connections. He's doing it by hand going beep, beep. Okay. It goes to here. Write that down on a spreadsheet. Like, wow. Okay. Well, Hey buddy. Hey, for 350 bucks, you two can get Gerber files. Like, what are you doing? But that's kind of as an old school guy and he's had formal training. Him and Gabriel Gorla and uh, Koichi Nishida, Playman in Bulgaria. These guys have all had formal training. I'm a hack. But that's kind of what I brought to even my own business. Like I just kind of saw things from an outside perspective because I didn't let some semi-failure in school tell me how it's supposed to be done. It's like, look, this works. I'm just going to do it. You know, If I make money at it or not, that's a whole other story. But this, this works. Why don't you just do it? Get the A to B as simplest as inexpensively as you can and here you go here's a, a transwarp basically so we we built them they take hours to build like i said there's hundreds of components on the thing and we tested them and they they run great because they're modern components all of them pretty much hit 18 megahertz at no trouble and before 
I came on the scene. They were doing like 12 to 13, maybe. I didn't do much. All I did was put stuff in new chips and go, here you go. <laughs> Occasionally, there was a chip or two that needed to be replaced. I was kind of dumb luck on my part finding half this stuff. But sometimes it is dumb luck, I guess. I mean, now that Jeff Bodie produced the schematic and kind of see, oh, yeah, that's why this would work. But before then, nobody had any clue. But you experiment on it. It's a $400 board. Now, back then, there were 300 or so, 200 But what's the worst case? You break one? Like, there's a ton of Apple stuff. That's kind of why I got into Apple as well. There's a ton of stuff. It's all low price. It's a very inexpensive hobby. I got guys who are in the cars, and they could spend four or $500 on a sticker or on a windshield or a windshield wiper. You know, it's just original. It's got the original chrome. It's like, really? Like, that's a... Okay. There's some weird economics there, maybe, because uh, uh, because the transwarps were so sought after, the prices were really high, and, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of them were dying from heat as well. So maybe the perception got created that it was this, you know, unobtainium, mysterious board that nobody knew how it worked and it wasn't clonable or whatever. Just sort of that sort of legend of the transwarp kind of fed on itself, maybe. And until you, no one had come along and been like, you know what, I bet we can just sand this thing down and, and send it away and yeah, solve the problem. <laughs> more more guts and brains. Yeah, <laughs> I've been told that. Yeah, it, it really is a very boring project as far as projects go. And the 8 meg RAM card definitely was a lot more intense. I learned a lot more. Uh, version 2 of the Transwarp will be a lot more intense, and I'll definitely break new ground there. But until then, eh. Can you talk about that a bit? What's, uh, what do you mean by version 2 of the Transwarp? Well, version 2, uh, now that we have uh, a known good schematic, uh, we have a known good starting point as far as a board we can actually work on. Uh, I don't prefer to work on original equipment. It pains me dearly to see um, uh, original equipment destroyed in the pursuit of uh, enlightenment, happiness, whatever. But it just pains me that I had to destroy a transwarp and send it off to be sanded. Or a 3.5 controller, 3.5 drive controller to be, again, destroyed and sanded. It just uh, it makes me grip my teeth and just puts me on edge. But I had no choice. These things weren't super rare. It wasn't a prototype. So I kind of was like, okay, but I just hate to see guys kind of just, I'll just take a sawzall and put a hole in my case. There's better ventilation. It's like, no, why would you do that? <laughs> it's just, I, I've been, uh, one of my hopes and aspirations, like the 2E kit, is to kind of, here's a 2E kit. You can solder to it. You're not destroying an original motherboard. You're not desoldering sockets and replacing them you're, you're not risking damage it's an original these are 30 years old they're not getting any younger neither are we and i'd like to see them preserved i'd like to be able to see you know, not them under glass but also being able to be used as well in their original form it's nice to trick them out and get that ultimate system you wanted back in high school as a kid we Unless you were credit carding things and being extremely nefarious, which I have no knowledge of that at all, uh, then you know it just you never had this stuff. It's very very rare. But as far as version two, we would be able to have a platform to work on. Number one, we'd be able to take the original version one, start pulling chips off, and ultimately rolling them in to a larger, uh, or as I call a complex programmable logic device, a CPLD. Or in this case, it'll probably be an FPGA, uh, which is basically a CPU-type custom logic chip. And ultimately, our 
the goal would be to replace the 816 as well. I don't think there's a lot of bottleneck at the 816. I know it's it's good for well over 20 megahertz, but I'd like to see something even faster. Like, what is the limit? Uh, you're just feeding stuff back onto the Apple bus, essentially. So there is that limit. But can I make stuff that just runs on the board and all it does is send video signals, possibly? Can I get it to a few hundred megahertz or gigahertz, possibly? So... That's kind of what I would like to break ground with, not just getting it all into a chip, a, a custom chip, but hopefully making it open source as well. And that may spur on some more development and tinkering in that field as well. So that's kind of what version two is. And it's very loose. We really haven't begun anything in it, but that's kind of the goal. Now, you do have some products that are in the pipeline that are a little bit closer to release than, than that. Uh, are, are you able to talk about any of those at this point? <clears throat> sure. Uh, the big ones, I guess, are a VGA adapter, uh, the IDA 2C drive. Um, there's mocking boards that just came out. We're also looking at producing a phaser. Uh, the power supply, I think we spoke briefly about that before. So, any one of those interested? <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in all of those. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> okay. Very excited about the idea to C drive. <laughs> yeah, that kind of came out of the microdrive turbo a little bit. Um, some people, uh, I'll leave them nameless, uh, tend to hoard things, their information, and I find that very counterproductive in a small community. If somebody was to come up and ask me, "Hey, can I have this?" I'd be like, "Yeah, I, I don't know what you're going to do with it, you know, and keep in mind it's you know open for." kind of creative commons uh, if you sell it we may have an issue there necessarily i mean you better discuss your plans with me before just taking it and trying to compete with me for instance because that doesn't really help the community either in my opinion if it did great I, I get it but in my opinion it just really wouldn't help the community to have two guys kind of fighting for the same hundred board sales it just and that was one reason I never kind of went after like the CFFA market. The Microdrive Turbo is fast. The CFFA has a ton of options compared to the Microdrive. It's a great board. Uh, Rich is a, an amazing guy. He's had some good guys on his team with testing and ideas and everything. Could I duplicate it? Yeah, but why? Like, am I going to compete for, what, 300 board sales? The Ethernet. I mean, I was busting... Uh, Glenn's stones for a while like are you going to do this because I'm going to take it and make it here like people want this he's like okay okay I'm going to do this I'm like you better do it hurry up you're trying to push him on a little bit I mean could I do it sure I, I don't know what I'm doing essentially but I could figure out enough and get the right people in the job it's what I do and I could figure that part out that's easy enough but like get it out there people want it you know and he's a pretty smart guy as well and just like come on hurry up I mean, these guys have lives as well so I kind of get it but you know, with, with like the the microdrive, like I said, it's just I was a little disappointed. I kept asking, like, "Hey, can you release this? Can you release that?" And it's like we could make it better, and it's like, "No, no, no." And I've known other guys in the community. It's like, "Oh, I have this." I'm like, "Well, why don't you release it?" And I'm actually guilty as that as well. Back in 2007, throw myself under the bus. Uh, Tony Diaz brought some classified Apple II documents, and we copied them. And it's like, "Oh, we got to get our names on these and get them out." But they're old blueprints, basically. They're old vellum, so they're really dark, and some of it is a little nebulous. I mean, they're, they're not bad shape, but we got them kind of in the nick of time. And so at least they're preserved digitally. But we need help 
uh, getting them into a more current form, preferably something like a PDF, a digital, and and or just recreate them in its entirety and then put the the scanned version below it. But I'm just as guilty. Like I just haven't had the time. But guys like the Koichi Nishida said, hey, can you send me some IOUs? And I'm like, well, I can do better. I think I have the schematic, like actual Apple's intellectual material that they sent off to VLSI to have made or, or Harris or one of those companies. Like, I think I have that. He's like, really? Like, yeah, that, that would work. <laughs> okay, here you go. Like, hope this solves your problem. And hence there's VGA boards now and other things like that. Personally, I'm looking forward to the, uh, to the phaser clone because those are, those things are, are, you know, um, unobtainium these days. You don't ever see them on on uh, on eBay or any, any other place like that. And, and yeah, the mocking board's great, but the phaser does so much more. And so I'm, you know, I just got a handful, a fistful of dollars that I'm going to throw at you at K, K-Fest. And I, I expect to be presented with one of these boards, Henry. Come on, come on. Well, there is some news on the phaser front. Uh, Tom Arnold, again, of uh, philosophyofsound.com. He's helped us with the mocking board. He's kind of a sound guru. And gurus and other things, but mostly sound. And he's helped us quite a bit with pulling the board apart, producing a schematic, and also testing some new chips, potential replacements for what's on the board. What's there, obviously, is like 19, early 1980s tech. And there's been a few things produced since then. So it's like, hey, we could use this, we could do that. So he's kind of testing some of that for us. And the problem with the device, AE is famous, they loved programmable logic because it saved them all kinds of chips and all kinds of real estate and costs and power savings, but uh, it makes it hard to copy these boards. <laughs> so we've uh, got in contact with uh, a few people overseas who actually have a clue on how to copy some of the easier PALs. And uh, we have a buddy over there. We send them a chip, and he actually managed to copy them for us. I was very surprised. So we've got kind of the, the keys of the kingdom here. So now it's a matter of testing stuff, getting the time, number one, testing stuff, and ultimately getting something put together and getting it to market. So that will happen. There's a 100 things on the front burner now. There's still mocking boards selling. There's still speech chips. So will it happen anytime soon? I don't think, like, very, very soon, but I'd like to see it, yes. <laughs> and it's definitely possible. For those of us who are a bit ignorant, can you guys go over the differences between the Mockingboard and the Phaser? Other than, I know they're both soundboards, but I don't know a lot more than that. Oh, basically, not to get super techy, but basically the Mockingboard is six voices. So you could have six beeps and boops and all little clicks that the Apple does coming at your speakers. Uh, my addition to the board was to add the 2E speaker basically onto the Mockingboard so you have all your little beeps and boops coming out of speakers rather than having the 2E beep separate. That just seems stupid to me. The Phaser is a Mockingboard, basically two Mockingboards, so you get 12 beeps and boops as opposed to six. It also does Echo Plus emulation and it did something else. I think it also does just a mocking board mode, if I remember, so you can kind of disable half the board. Um, so it's a little more gooder than the average mocking board. Would the average user see the more gooderness? Probably not, but there's a few games out there that take advantage of it, so you will get a little more fun, a little more bang for your buck when you buy one. 
And didn't one of those two boards have the have sockets for speech chips or something? So yeah, the phasers came with dual speech chips. Uh, some of the mocking boards there was five or six different revisions. I can't even keep them all straight. Some of the earlier ones used the SCO one speech chip, uh, which was kind of it was good, but the SCO two or their second revision was a lot better. SSI two six three same chip. It was a lot better. It was a little more normal sounding, if you want to call Stephen Hawking's voice normal. Um, speak and spell, you know, it's not kind of quote-unquote normal. It's not intelligible, at least. Um, but it also had a little more uh, beeps and boops as well, had a little more frequency, I believe. So it was, it was a better chip all around. And some of the later Mockingboards used the SCO2 chip, or the SSI263 chip. And some didn't use the chip at all. All right. Well, Henry, um, this has been great. Um, are there any announcements or anything that, that we missed that we should have asked you? <laughs> well, the uh, only other thing I could think of really is the IDA 2C project, uh, the IDA 2C drive. Uh, it's going to be basically internal board, think AE uh, ZRAM Ultra, basically. It'll have, the goal is 4 megs of RAM. It'll have uh, a phaser, a 12 voice speech board on it, or a 12 voice soundboard on it, a clock, and we're kind of tinkering with some other stuff, but I'd like to see a Pi added to it. I don't know physically how that would work. There's going to be some connections. But ultimately, everything's going to be wireless. I think the, the connections uh, for... The storage, the mass storage part, will be like a Toshiba Flash Air. That seems to be working very well with the Nishida Radio's uh, Unidrive Air, I want to say it's called. And uh, I think we're going to do some sort of Bluetooth stereo out, so it'll work with just your standard $10 eBay special Bluetooth to component video or component audio adapter. It would work with your phone, uh, your average higher-end audio component devices would all have that built in. There's Bluetooth wireless speakers even, so you don't have to worry about extra cables in your 2C. Um, the only other project I could think of, like I said, the power supply project, and we're hoping just to have a kit, basically, that would a user be able to install and use. Um, the only other thing we're working with, uh, John McMaster at siliconpron.org, P-R-0-N, uh, with digitizing the IWM and the swim chip. Uh, we've decapped a few of them. And if you haven't seen his site, they've got silicon art on up to like how arms work. And these, I don't know how else to describe them, but nutcases to basically pull chips apart and spend hours and weeks of their time digitizing how the different layers in the chips connect. So they literally de-layer chips. Yeah, it's amazing work. These guys are so committed. They're really smart. I'm hoping to possibly do some of their dirty work <laughs> and figure out what they do and how they do what they do. Again, it's just a new area. And if so, then that will allow us to kind of recreate the 3.5 drive controller project in uh, custom logic because the swim is a major part of that for the floppy support. IWM is a major part in other projects as well. Uh, but just to get a better understanding of Apple's custom logic is kind of my goal as well, to be able to get that out there to the community. Um, just 
amazing stuff those guys do. Uh, again, we're, I like being open source. We always try to get schematics out there. I think the CV Tech and the Ramworks 3 more recently is, uh, a, and the gals for the Transwarp are definitely a statement to that. And uh, I look at it as a type of geek immortality. You get to, hopefully somebody will take some of this, the work I've done and use it in their work. I know I've stood on some pretty broad shoulders to get where I am and it'd be nice to be able to give back and hopefully somebody could stand on my shoulders and get a little further and be part of that chain would be neat. <laughs> For sure. It's the nerd version of having children. Kind of, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, that's that's awesome. And then plugs for things. Obviously, Facebook, if you go to Reactive Micro USA on Facebook, you could keep up on our blogs, ultimateapple2.com. We've got some forms there for support. Apple to Heaven, uh, great products. Nishida Radio Chapter 3. Uh, Joe's Computer Museum. We're working with a Joe uh, Strasnitter, I believe. Sorry, Joe, I can't pronounce your name. It's uh, <laughs> Strasnitter, yes. And if you search Joe's Computer Museum on YouTube.com, uh, he's going to be doing, hopefully, a few reviews for us. So you'll actually be able to see possibly even some prototypes show up there. And he'll give you what he thinks, how they work. Uh, we'll work with them, basically. I wish I had more time. I'd love to be able to do better documentation. I'd love to be able to have a YouTube channel and get more into it. I'm a huge fan of like Vsauce and EVV blog, Veritasium in a nutshell. These guys just... Uh, do amazing work out there to get information out there and just real mentors. And uh, Joe Strausender was one of the guys who contacted us and said, hey, I want to get into EEPROMs. It's like, okay, here, I'll send you some equipment. Have uh, have a go at it. Do a review of it. And, of course, siliconporn.org. Uh, check them out. they got all kinds of neat stuff. That's great. Yeah, we'll definitely link to all of that in the show notes. And I think I can speak for the whole community when I say we're very excited for all those new products. So we'll be watching uh, ultimatemicro.com with uh, intention and uh, our wallets in hand. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Sure. You want to stick around and do some news with us, Henry? Ooh, can I? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's roll on into that, shall we? It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. Looks like our first item here is yours. Mike, uh, start us off. Okay, so our first uh, first item this month is the uh, Floppy Disk Preservation Project. It's at diskpreservation.com, and it's, um, it's started out as a Commodore uh, serial number registry, and the the site uh, owner, whose name escapes me at the moment, has recently set up um, a system for tracking your earlier Apple IIs, meaning your Apple II, your II Plus, Euro Plus, J Plus, the, the Bell and Howell. Uh, none of the later machines like the IIe or anything, but I think that's because those are really, really common. Uh, but at any rate, there's um, there's a number of machines already posted up there. I think we're up to 45 now. So if you if you want to uh, show off and make your friends feel bad that their serial number is higher than yours. You can post all that information at, uh, again, diskpreservation.com, and we'll have a link in the show notes. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And in my day job, I'm a, I'm a bit of a data nerd as part of our business, and uh, uh, so it's always cool to see data gathered. I wonder if there will be some things we can deduce from this, similar to uh, you know what Brutal Deluxe was doing, collecting 2GS serial numbers in an effort to estimate the production numbers. I wonder if the same could be done for other Apple II models. That'd be interesting. I know that um, over at uh, AppleFritter.com, they're they're um, fans of you know the Rev Zero and 
stuff like that. And some of the guys there have, and um, some of the people there have gone really, really deep in, in figuring out, you know, okay, how many uh, rev zeros were there and at what serial number did they switch over from the, the dark green or the light green slots to the dark green slots and stuff like that. I mean, it's it really inside baseball on it, but if you're into that kind of information, there's a lot to be had over at Apple Fritter too. So check that out. Cool. Plus, it's good to know how many there were, so you know how guilty you should feel if you need to destroy one for reverse engineering, as Henry was alluding to. Henry. Ah, yeah, I know. Well, p part of that, actually, I, I like the work they do. Cause I know Anton was putting together serial numbers uh, with the GSs, and I had a question of, like, I ran into issues with the slot maker on different revision ROM 1 boards, because Apple changed from a, a slot maker revision a to revision b whatever that is could be a new encapsulation but i don't think so i think there's something physically different with the chip because i've actually pulled chips off the boards and swapped them around and problems i had in one gs went away and the problems occurred in the gs that was working i'm pretty sure yeah so i'd like to be able to put like a caveat in a note saying hey if you bought a microdrive and you have this revision and it's before this serial number i would love to be able to do that to try and resolve issues because i'm sure there's people out there struggling going why does it work here and it doesn't work here ah there's problems but no it might be a fine gs it's just unfortunate that specs are a little off and that's why they fix yeah, it yeah there's a similar situation with the 2c pluses uh, is it uh james littlejohn who does the uh, 2c plus accelerator uh workshops at kansas fest and there's i guess the two custom chips uh related to the accelerator and there's four different combinations of those two chips and like certain combinations work and certain don't. So part of his workshop is you have to find another 2C plus owner if yours isn't compatible. And if you just, the two of you swap this chip, then you can both now be accelerated. <laughs> it's a very strange <laughs> situation. I think I got myself banned from those, from those uh, workshops. How so? Uh, so uh -oh. last time I was at Kansas Fest, so I think it was the first time that, that they did this and uh, James, uh, we, we, uh, did the work on one of my two C pluses to speed it up. But when we turned it back on, nothing happened, nothing at all. We just click the power light comes, goes on and that's all it does. And we couldn't figure out what was going on and what was wrong with it. And, and, um, James was starting to get a little bit worried and, and, uh, he, um, the next, he took the two C plus and the next day, uh, calls me into his, over to his room and he wasn't there and Anthony was, was in there and he's like, and. I'll just let James explain this to you. And it turned out those, you know, those little round, um, like cushiony washer things. Um, I had left those in the, in the plastic case. And so they were on the bottom of the board making contract. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't think I'm allowed back into the, into the, <laughs> to the workshop, but if you go to Kansas fest and you have a two C plus that you want to accelerate it, definitely, uh, check the, check out that workshop. Those things are great. <laughs> Uh, classic. All the workshops, yes. Yeah. All right. Definitely. Solderfest is one of those as well. Great, great workshops. Cool. Well, moving right along, uh, we uh, talked about in the uh, interview with Henry there about uh, A2 Heaven, uh, plumbing the, uh, the Mad Bulgarian's new web store. This is uh, a little bit old news now, but uh, being that we're a monthly podcast and we skipped an episode to uh, chew the fat with uh, some friends of the show last month, uh, this is a bit late to the uh, news section. But nevertheless, uh, the web store that everyone has been waiting for is finally online, so you can go buy your Apple IIc to VGA adapters and uh, all that good stuff. So uh, I myself have the uh, Apple IIc VGA adapter, and it is fantastic. Works exactly as you would hope. 
You're not sure how many um, how many people are are still out there that don't know that the shop is open, but <laughs> report on it anyway. <laughs> this is why we're not a news show, folks. That's right. Because <laughs> we're I think terrible his biggest at it. problem has been. I think his biggest problem has been keeping things in stock. Yeah, no kidding. Mm, yeah, yeah. There was some real pent up demand for a number of his products for sure. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of everyone's favorite products, so it looks like Ivan Drucker's updated A2 server. Is that right, Mike? Yeah. So he's updated the the um, package to 1.2.5. Uh, the main feature of this is now that uh, it offers a GSOS uh, 6.0.1 for network booting. Which is really cool, um, and the uh, it also supports the community releases of 6.0.2 and 6.0.3, and includes the HFS FST with install and some minor bug fixes. So if you if you're if you're using Ivan's A2 server, now's the time. Actually, this was back in November, so it's past the time where you should have gone out and got the update already. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, I like uh, I like these products of Ivan's. It's uh, A2 server and uh, A2 cloud and and related uh, things. They're kind of a uh, they do a lot of sort of dumb computer tricks that uh, you would not expect, but they're actually genuinely useful as well. Uh, if you want to play with your Apple II in and around the internet, uh, there's a few easier or neater ways to do it. I think. Yeah, and just for anyone who doesn't know, A2 Server is the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, A2 Server is the uh, set of programs that allows uh, you to easily use any computer, including the Raspberry Pi, as a file server and network boot host for Apple II computers. Yes, I like it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact, a couple, a couple of years ago at Kansas Fest, Ivan gave a, a sort of bizarre but fascinating demo uh, involving uh, this product, or and I think Peter Neubauer was involved as well. Um, where they demoed uh, sort of uh, shelling into the Apple, shelling into the Raspberry Pi and then running Sweet 16 on it and sort of emulating a 2GS on a 2E. It was, it was bizarre and fascinating. Just like Ivan, bizarre and fascinating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> These are the, the kinds of things you can do. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking of bizarre and fascinating, uh, French Touch continues to do impressive things with the Apple II uh, in the... Uh, uh, sort of adorable, uh, as Kevin Savitz would say, demo scene on the Apple II. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> 1977, all right? Just keep that in mind. 1977. <laughs> um, so the latest demo from French Touch is called Raster Bars. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know what a raster bar is, it's sort of this thing that came out of the Commodore 64 demo scene where, uh, like some, some retro computers, including the 2GS, in fact, they have some limited control of the color of the... Uh, overscan area of the monitor and you know through registers and very careful cycle counting and timing uh, with or without interrupts depending on the machine you can change the color of the background and then back again and effectively get you know horizontal lines that appear out in the overscan area of the monitor outside where the pixels are uh, and uh, of course most famously the FTA Christmas demo did this uh, to extreme effect in uh, on the 2GS and uh, to the point where they actually got text rendering in the overscan area which is mind melting and uh so uh so yeah so just sort of creating these horizontal lines and using different colors to make it look sort of like uh, pipes or something you know round objects moving up and down uh they're known as raster bars and uh, so yeah they come out of that uh, crack and, and scene demo on the c64 
Uh, so of course the 8-bits don't have any kind of overscan control or, or video registers of that nature. Um, but uh, French Touch has kind of done a pretty convincing uh, version of it using uh, some snazzy low-res graphics. So uh, it looks uh, much better than you would expect based on that description of it. Uh, and uh, there's some mockingboard sound in there as well, and uh, some impressive uh, high-res graphics effects as well. So, uh, yeah, those uh, those folks continue to push the 8-bits farther than I think most of us thought possible. Mockingboard sound support? Wow, it's a shame. There's actually just a few mockingboards left in the store at UA2. <laughs> <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> it's good. Well, uh, well timed. Uh, all right, uh, next item is uh, is mine also. Uh, just a random plug for the uh, Antic uh, Atari Buatari podcast. A, uh, it's, a, it's a good listen, even if you're uh, not into that scene. Uh, those guys are doing bang-up work there. And uh, yeah, at one point in, uh, let's see, uh, Antic Interview 45, they uh, made a reference to the Apple community and whether or not we're listening. And so I just wanted to say, yes, we are listening, and we hear everything that you say about us. Buatari. Yes, Kevin, we're monitoring you closely. <laughs> Especially, I loved his interview right. with uh, William D. Mensch of Western Design Center, uh, the creator of yeah. the 6502. Oh, yeah. What a great interview. Mm -hmm. Well worth the listen. Yeah, that one that, that one captivated a lot. Yeah, it was half engineering retrospective and half philosophy of <laughs> life by Bill Mensch. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. It, it gets pretty meta towards the end. <laughs> Kevin, in between, I, I don't know what to ask you. Hold on. <laughs> Coming up with questions, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Good listen. Yeah, towards the end, it kind of went weird. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Bill. Uh, Bill's a very interesting guy. I actually worked sort of indirectly with him a little bit um, when uh, we were. I was looking to do some software for them for their um, uh, their new sixty five hundred two based hobbyist uh, development boards. Uh, did not end up uh, getting gaining traction, but uh, yeah, interesting guy for sure. And from now on, this podcast will be known as the Buatari Podcast. <laughs> I think it was. I think it was already known as that. Uh, well, that's true. <laughs> much to the consternation of at least one listener. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, moving right along. Uh, let's see. We got Apple IIs in Berlin, Mike. What's going on here? Apple II celebrities, anyway. So this is a uh, Geek Fest 2016 that happened. Um, um, or I'm sorry, 2015 that happened uh, in Berlin. Uh, and I don't know how we as a community miss this because, uh, some of the panels are for all the names that you want to hear from. There's Bruce Damer from the Digibarn and there's a panel with uh, Andy Hertzfeld and Randy Wigginton, uh, uh, Daniel Kotke and the uh, infamous hacker and freaker Cheshire Catalyst, uh, pirates, uh, Dan Sokol and Roy Nordblum. And even Lee Felsenstein, who was, I think, either the founder or one of the original members. I know he was an original member of the Homebrew Computer Club. And uh, they streamed all of their their panels. But it looks like, for uh, fortunately for, for us, uh, who those of us who didn't know about this, uh, the recordings are now available on YouTube to watch. Yay. Pretty amazing watch, definitely. Yeah, it's, I don't know when we'll get a group like that together again. So, yep, it's definitely spend the time, time. To, to listen to that. Yeah. So uh, we talk a lot about Virtual 2 on the show here. It's certainly our 
favorite uh, emulator, uh, but uh, it's certainly not the only one. Of course, uh, there's also Apple Win, which is good. Uh, and there's another kind of lesser known one called the Apple II Plus Simulator. And this is uh, an entirely in-browser uh, thing. And uh, I guess I would liken it to uh, Call Apple's in-browser emulator, uh, which is uh, virtualapple2.org. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, I may not yes. have that right, but we'll have we'll have the URL right in the in the uh, show notes. Uh, so this is uh, along those lines. Uh, it's an in-browser uh, emulator, and there's a little drop-down menu where you can swap out the disk images and uh, and play with uh, play with it that way. It's a it's a pretty neat thing because uh, it does a lot of uh, sort of emulation of video artifacts and uh, you know curvature of the glass CRT and some of that kind of stuff that you don't usually see in in emulators. So uh, definitely a, a neat uh, kind of thing to play with. Um, maybe not as sort of powerful for development like Virtual 2, but uh, yeah, definitely uh, nice to see more uh, emulators kicking around. Have you uh, have you guys played with this one? I haven't. I have. Yeah. Yeah, this one, this is uh, specifically a, a 2 plus. I don't think you can change it to a different kind of Apple II. Uh, but it is um, similar to, to the Virtual 2 where there are menus where you can just click the disk image that you want to boot and you can hit run and it's, it's off and running. It does allow you, um, you know, access to some utilities. You know, you've got the stop and trace and uh, 6502 regression tests and that sort of thing. So uh, and probably like Quinn said, not ideal for development, but you can at least see kind of what's running uh, under the hood there. Yeah, I'm not a, a two or two plus kind of guy. I tinker a little bit, but I'm more of a virtual Apple org guy. I like to fire up uh, an occasional game or two during a lunch or a pizza and relax. Yeah, the challenge for me with these kinds of in-browser emulators is always getting the uh, you know joystick to work because that's of course so important for most Apple II games. And uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about that last month. Uh, Charles Megan and Retro Connector have some solutions there that work with some of the web-based uh, emulators, like the one on archive.org. Uh, I wonder if uh, it would work with this Apple II Plus simulator as well. Be interesting to see. It's too bad nobody knows Charles and could ask him. Yeah. Oh well, unsolvable <laughs> <Next>. problem. <laughs> Moving right along, uh, <laughs> so uh, we like to uh, call ourselves uh, the Apple II podcast of record, and uh, uh, arguably the only Apple II podcast, Carrington, uh, who has not updated one megahertz in 500 years. But he uh, there, to. <laughs> yes, he says he's got two uh, two or something episodes in the can, and yet uh, they are not being published. Uh, grumble, grumble. Now there is technically one other podcast in active uh, production. But uh, it, uh, I actually, I'm sure I'm not the only person who thought this one was gone. Uh, John Romero's uh, Apple Time Warp podcast. Now he did uh, one episode. Uh, was it was it six months or a year ago? No, it was late like 2013. So a lot. Oh, 2013. <laughs> wow. That okay. I didn't realize it was that long ago. Uh, and it was it was great, and everybody was super excited for a new uh, Apple II podcast, and by none other than John Romero. Uh, and then it uh, vanished. <laughs> so I think, uh, I, personally, I had deleted it from my uh, podcatcher. I am assuming many people did, assuming that was it. But, uh, you know, uh, keep the faith because episode two uh, was just released and it's great. So uh, hopefully this is uh, a sign of things to come. Uh, this time in 2017, maybe we can expect uh, episode three. Yeah, I know he's a busy guy, but Come on, John, 2013. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's, it's really great because John, because of John's, you know, celebrity status and his years with it and then that god-awful game that we won't talk about that he made after that, um, he has access... <laughs> 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 he has access sometimes to people and, and 
uh, situations that maybe we here on Open Apple wouldn't. And so he's able to tell the stories and, and talk to uh, people that, that, that um, it's, it's um, talk to people uh, in, in unique situations and, and get bits of history out there. And it's, it's just great to hear his experiences, uh, especially with the Apple, because a lot of these guys, you know, uh, came up on the Apple and, and don't talk about it anymore, Bill Budge, and won't, um, <laughs> you know, or have just moved on or, or forgotten. And, and so it's great to see John still involved heavily with the stuff. I know he runs the, uh, he runs a, a disc, a, a disc collector's uh, group and, and some other stuff. And he's got some unique items that he loves to talk about. So yeah, good stuff. Yeah, he asks good questions. And yeah, as you say, that he's able to get, I think, or he will be able to get interviews that, yeah, a lot of us can't. Uh, yeah, we've, as you alluded to, we've been trying uh, for many, many years to get uh, to get Bill Budge on the show. And uh, we tried again uh, this month to uh, to no avail. So uh, uh, we are trying, folks, but uh, maybe, uh, maybe John can succeed where we have failed there. Bill just doesn't like us. Yeah, <laughs> I'll throw one, uh, one, uh, one other thing out about this podcast. Uh, they're using an interesting feature of podcasts that uh, very few shows do, which is that, uh, uh, you know, there's this obscure feature that allows you to show images while the show is playing uh, on, you know, on your iPhone or whatever, right in the podcast player, it'll bring up an image uh, that switches out kind of like a slideshow automatically as the show runs. And they're actually using that. So as they as they're talking, you can kind of see a picture of what they're talking about. So uh, you know they'll bring up screenshots of the games they're talking about, or you know at one point they talk about magnetic core memories. They bring up an image of that, so you know what it looks like. So it's a cool kind of media feature that uh, I've I don't think I've ever seen any other podcasts uh, do. Um, So it's neat that they're doing that. Does that? Okay. Yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because it means you kind of have to sit there and stare at your uh, iPhone while you listen to the podcast, uh, which, you know, as an audio medium, I think most of us are just listening to it uh, while we do other things. But uh, it's neat that they're trying stuff like that anyway. All right. Well, Mike, uh, are you an Android user? Is there a I used to be when I switched over to, to iPhone, but um, there, there's Maui Aaron. This is the username he, he gave uh, A2 Central. Uh, sent them a message over there that there is now a, an emulator called Apple II X or IX or something. It's a two emulator. runs on Android. It's designed to be cross-platform, um, Mac, Linux, BSD, desktop, and then iOS, Android, mobile only. Only the Android version is officially released and supported at this time. There are a number of features that he describes, including the minimalist touch keyboard and touch joystick. Uh, making playing of old arcade titles on the touchscreen uh, feel seamless, which that's been a problem for a long time with a lot of this stuff. Um, there's uh, support going all the way back to uh, Android Gingerbread, which I, th- I think is several years old now. Uh, minimal permissions, and uh, it's currently out in the Play Store, so you can go download that uh, right now because it's free, free, free. Cool. I'm starting to wonder if Apple II is becoming more ubiquitous now than in like 85. Oh, I think so, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Jeez, there's emulators everywhere, online, this and that, games available. Wow. Now, I know it's not the only Apple II emulator for Android, because there's one called Candy Apple, but I I don't know how... It's been a while since I think that's been updated, and I know there were problems with that, so um, I don't know how this compares to that, but it's worth probably checking out. Yeah, the internet has this power to, to concentrate fandom in a way that's really unprecedented, so yeah... The uh, community can seem, you know, much bigger than it is, and uh, and the the great thing about that is it draws more and more people in. You know, as we see on the Apple II 
uh, Facebook enthusiasts group, you know, you can tell how it's growing because, you know, every week the same 10 questions get asked uh, about how do I plug in a VGA monitor and how do I, you know, start with no floppy disks and so on. So yeah, the fact that people are still asking these same questions means new people are coming into the community all the time. So yeah, it's fantastic. A couple new faces. Yeah, we see it all the time too. All right. Well, let's see. Yeah, speaking of uh, the active community, there's also a lot of software development going on these days. And the uh, AppleSoft extension called PeerSoft has been updated. And uh, this is a really cool thing. It, uh, it started as an effort, and it's still mainly, I guess, an effort to add integer math to AppleSoft. You know, a lot of people may not realize that all of the math in AppleSoft is done as floating points. So even if you you know, do 2 plus 4, it's actually doing 2.0 plus 4.0, and all of that uh, is getting, you know, parsed and sent through the whole floating point unit and, and so on, or the floating point routines, rather, in AppleSoft. And it's all very, very, very slow. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, you basically providing support for a lot of precision that you don't need for 99.9% .9 of things you're going to do in AppleSoft. So, uh, PeerSoft uh, gives you direct uh, integer support, and uh, so it's um, a really neat, neat thing. So it's, uh, it does a lot of other things as well, uh, but uh, that seems to be its primary focus. So if you're into AppleSoft and want to get a little more speed out of your math, you should give it a try. All right, uh, let's see, uh, Squirt, that's a, a delicious sounding product. Mike, what's this about? <laughs> Uh, so someone named Rob in Saskatchewan sent this in to uh, Call Apple. They have this new. Um, so Call Apple has this uh, this new section called Write Apple, where you can submit programs uh, that they will host for download for you if you like. And this is one called Scort. It is a program launcher, um, and I, I guess this has been. He says it's been around for a little while. It looks like, and this is the um, updated version, uh, or maybe it was in beta. And now it's final. Um, anyway, it. Um, Let's see, what does he say it can do? Can, Squirt can navigate directories with ease and minimum keystrokes, launch system, binary, and AppleSoft pro, uh, programs, view text source and mouse text screen files, as well as bitmap fonts and high-res and double high-res graphics screens. It can automatically recognize the difference between a binary graphics file, binary text file, binary program file, and binary font file. So that's uh, freely available to download right now at Call Apple, and of course, the link will be in the show notes. I yeah, can't wait to try that out. That's pretty cool. All right, so uh, we talk a lot about uh, 4AM on the show, but uh, uh, 4AM is not the only person doing lots of uh, sort of cracking-related activities. Um, so there's uh, so for, on 4AM's Twitter feed, which of course you should all be following, um, there's often talk of this other cracker called, I'm going to say, Cucumba, for lack of any other knowledge on how to pronounce that. And Cucumba has uh, done has actually helped 4AM a lot with the cracks. But uh, now uh, on um, Compsys Apple II, uh, Cucumba is uh, using these cracking skills to uh, get DOS 3.3 based games to run in uh, ProDOS, uh, which is you know means you can install them on your hard drive or or, or whatever. So that's, that's that's very cool. Now. Uh, if you read 4AM's Twitter feed, you know that a lot of these floppy, you know, bit-based games uh, had their own custom, you know, operating systems as part of their copy protection. Usually they were based on DOS 3.3 in some way. Uh, often the, you know, the read-write track sector routines were ripped right out of DOS 3.3, uh, much to 4AM's amusement. Uh, sometimes, you know, having multiple versions of those routines on the same game. 
So what it means is basically you have to, you know, extract kind of the binary executable of the game and sort of separate it, decouple it, if you will, from all this custom operating system stuff and kind of patch it in to work with normal Protoss stuff. So, uh, you wizardry. know, it, go, sorry, Henry. It's all wizardry. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because at the end of the day, you know, any game is still just code that's going to sit in RAM and run and that's going to be compatible. That's independent of the operating system. So, I'll, you know, you just have to sort of, sort of find all the places where the game touches the disk, which for arcade games and so on is not that often. Uh, you know, mostly they live in memory. So if you can find all those places where they touch the disk and use their own custom routines and just kind of patch those in uh, to use standard Protoss routines. Um, and then, of course, you also have to uh, potentially patch, you know, memory allocation and so on. If they're doing their own tricky things with aux banks or, or the language card space, things like that, then Protoss is going to get unhappy. So there's potential problems there. But uh, it's yeah, a lot of the same skills you would use in cracking uh, can be used to get these games to run in Protoss uh, independently of these wacky custom OSs. So Cucumba has been doing that and has gotten uh, Swashbuckler and Conan and a lot of other uh, favorites going so far. So this is a really a fantastic effort and a, a great application of cracking skills. Yeah, I think this sort of started as an effort to turn, um, you know, you, you get a disc that had a single game on it and, and they thought, well, what a waste of space. And, um, you know, once you pull all the programs apart, like you said, Quinn, from and load them in memory and save and load memory and save it and then kind of link everything together. They found that you could get a bunch of these games all on one disk. And then from there, it kind of went to, well, that's great, but these are still just DOS 3.3, which means no hard drive and, and uh, a lot less portability. And, and so now, now we've gone to, let's convert everything over to Protoss, which is really cool. Yeah. Interestingly, they would sometimes go too far with that uh, in the effort to get more games on a disc. And uh, like we learned recently with uh, with Lady Tut, uh, they had, you know, the original Cracker had crammed that onto, you know, into a single file on a disc with five other games, uh, a copy of which we probably all had. And it uh, turns out they had cut out uh, the big animation sequence at the end of the game and most of the levels and all this other stuff that uh, nobody knew was in the game because we all played this cracked version that really only had four or five levels in it. So, uh, yeah, it's good to see these efforts to uh, get these games back. Uh, and uh, speaking of 4AM and uh, cracking and so on, um, Antoine Vigneault, friend of the show, uh, has kind of lately turned into what I'll call 4AM GS. Um, Antoine has been uh, over on uh, hackzapple.com, which I think is, is Antoine's forum site. Is that right? All right. Well, in any case, uh, over on hackzapple.com, uh, Antoine has been uh, cracking uh, 2GS games in very much the same way as 4AM has been doing on Twitter. And uh, he's been documenting them to a similar extent. So if you like 4AM's Twitter feed, uh, you should definitely follow Antoine on Twitter. And we'll link to, to that in the show notes as well. And uh, uh, he links to uh, his write-ups over on hackzapple.com. So ever the stalwart 2GS preserver is Antoine. Indeed. And let's see. So now uh, we got some action uh, with AppleWorks. This is really cool. I think uh, Randy Brandt's going to be very excited to hear about this one. Uh, tell us, tell us about uh, Hugh Hood, Mike. Yeah. So Hugh Hood is a huge, huge, huge AppleWorks fan, and um, I, I had the the um, privilege and opportunity to work with him when I was scanning the the uh, Nog um, AppleWorks forum magazines, and uh, he. he provided me with a bunch of information and utilities and things like that that I didn't have. And he's written a, a whole lot of, um, you know, just useful little AppleWorks, um, 
utilities and routines over the years. And I guess now he's starting to release init packs is what he's calling them. This is init pack 2016. It's a collection of six new inits. It works with AppleWorks 5.1. Uh, this one includes uh, WP status 24, uh, which I think is the word processor status. There's the, the DB status for the database, SS status for the um, for the spreadsheet, and then there's show path, max desk, and finder launch. And I know that he has been working with Randy Brandt actually specifically on, on this directly. So uh, that was released in December. And so if you are, for whatever reason, still using AppleWorks, um, there you go. I'm actually kind of amazed as, as deep as I am, or I consider myself as deep as I am in the the workings and the Apple II community. I'm always amazed when somebody says they use AppleWorks or Dazzle Draw or something. It's I always just kind of shake my head. It's like <laughs> I, I, I do this for my own edification and then to to understand things a little more. And at no point when I go, okay, I need to write a resume. I'm gonna fire up Cut and Paste or Apple Write or one of these. I'm like what? <laughs> what? What do you guys do with it? It's amazing to hear there's still guys that use us. I'm just like, you can go to Google Documents. It's not more efficient, and you can share it. And I'm just amazed that people <laughs> still use this stuff. Yeah, I think at least some of it is just sort of just for the nostalgia of it and just to kind of play with it as a, as a project to write an AppleWorks plugin. is kind of a neat, you know, little thing to play with. I don't know. It's hard to say if anyone still uses it uh, for serious work, although... Uh, Randy often has told the story that uh, there was a, a a watchmaker client of his in New York, I think, who was using AppleWorks to run his his business up until what 2003 or something. Well, no, and, like last uh, year. Oh, was it last year? Yeah, yeah, it was literally last. Yeah, it was literally last year. Anthony and I got a call from a guy to say, "Hey, we got some old GSs. Do you want them?" And we're like, "Yeah." And he met over there, and it's like, "Oh, it's this guy." I'm like, "Oh, the watch guy? Are you kidding me? Like, I actually know about this guy." Hey, give us a bunch of GSs and old monitors and everything. We're like, yeah, thanks. We appreciate you donating to the cause. He still still has a GS. He still uses it. He's trying to get away from it, but he we talk to him every six months or something. He's like, no, I haven't forgotten about you guys. When I'm ready to switch totally, I'll, I'll let you know. But yeah, he still uses it. <laughs> yeah, I think Randy had said that he was uh, contracted to actually write a, a web-based version uh, of some of the AppleWorks tools so this guy can kind of transition <laughs> to, to the cloud sort of by getting an AppleWorks kind of interface or something to... To, to that. That's pretty pretty amusing stuff. Uh, well, speaking of Beagle Brothers, uh, Alan Bird got interviewed recently. Is that right, Mike? That's true. Now, he was interviewed by Uno Cero. Did I pronounce that properly? I'm not sure. Uno Cero? Uh, Prob maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, so so the, the um, interview text is um, in Spanish, and if you run it through Google Translator, you get sort of a close approximation to what he said. But it's always nice to hear uh, when these guys surface. Of course, uh, Alan was on our, uh, our our roundtable last year, the, the Beagle Brothers reunion roundtable, and it was great to hear from him. And so it's nice to see he's still kicking around and still thinking about uh, Apple stuff. Yeah, uh, we'll link to the uh, we'll have a Google Translate link to the uh, interview in the show notes. Uh, the Google Translate kind of bungles up the CSS yes. in their <laughs> or in their uh, website, but if, you'll see some gigantic uh, icons and things if you just scroll past that. The interview is is down there, so uh, don't mind that. Um, and yeah, speaking of uh, kind of retreading open Apple territory, David Schroeder, who we spoke to recently, uh, has been writing a blog for Gamma Sutra about his uh, Apple II game exploits, and uh, there was uh, one on Crisis Mountain, and it looks like uh, Venture Beat has kind of reprinted that article. I think it's the same. Is that right, Mike? It looked... Is there any yeah. additions in this? 
I'm not seeing anything that wasn't in the original, um, but it's nice to see that uh, a bigger media outlet picked up his uh, picked up his writing and is publishing that for him. Yep, always good for the community too. Uh, so this this next article uh, is very interesting. Uh, so it looks like a private collector has opened a sort of Apple museum in Prague. Tell us about that one, Mike. So, it, well, it's uh, exactly what, what you just said. It's, uh, <laughs> a, <laughs> it is a museum. He's calling it uh, the Apple Museum. In, it's in Prague. There's, uh, it's apparently the largest private collection of Apple products, uh, including uh, Mac and iOS devices, and going all the way back to the, the original Apple product. He's got an Apple One set up in there. Uh, they're saying that there's um, something like 100,000 pieces in the collection. Obviously, they're not all going to be out at once. The The place is set up sort of like uh, an Apple store with kind of the uh, um, low white tables and, and um, sort of cool, relaxing atmosphere about everything. Uh, but if you're, if you're there, check it out. Has anybody contacted Sean Fahey for a comment? Because he might have over 100,000 pieces. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Him or Tony Diaz could probably give them a run for his money. I'm not yeah. sure 30,000 Ram Factor cards should count against <laughs> that number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this museum is very interesting. Uh, it's making the rounds uh, because the the physical presentation is really quite stunning. Uh, you know, among among other things, he's got long tables set up with sort of timelines of, you know, the iPods, and they're kind of laid out on the table physically uh, on a timeline of their development. Uh, he's recreated the famous iMac ad where they had all the, you know, candy-colored iMacs kind of in a circle viewed from above. He's actually recreated that with physical iMacs in a window. Uh, you know, there's really, really beautiful displays. Now, where I think this gets very interesting, though, is, of course, Apple has always said they'll never make a museum and they, you know, because they're focused on the future and not the past, yada, yada. And this is most definitely not official. And where I think so, of course, there's nothing wrong with setting up a private collection and letting people come and see it. Uh, where I think this guy's going to get into trouble is if you follow the links in the uh, story to his website, uh, the website is very trying quite hard to look official uh so he you know it's called the apple museum it's using apple's logos and their trademarks and there's nothing in there about it being unofficial uh he's using all kinds of product shots and marketing shots from apple materials so you know he's uh yeah he's using their logos uh the website is actually applemuseum.com i believe or net so yeah, uh, he's gonna he's gonna get a call from Apple's lawyers. I think about this one. I mean, it's one thing to have a private collection that people come and look at. It's quite another to you know create legitimate brand confusion, which I think his site is, is definitely doing. So, I look forward to the uh, cease and desist there. Yeah, you um, might wanna if you're if you're planning to see it, you might wanna go soon. Uh, tickets, are, uh, <laughs> tickets are 11, 11 euros and there's like a 3d virtual tour online and all kinds of stuff yeah. so, so he's definitely put a lot of effort into it it may all be for naught but fingers yeah. crossed that he lasts for a little while yeah being in being in Prague, he might be out of the somewhat out of the reach of apple's lawyers i don't know i guess we'll find out uh you know i know if you tried to do something like this in the states uh as soon as you call yourself a museum and start charging for tickets uh you cross a line where, you know, I know I have some friends who've looked into this as being big collectors of things. 
and uh, you cross a line there where now you have to, you know, the fire marshal has to come in and inspect your building and you need fire exits and, you know, sprinklers and, you know, the government now has access to your books and, you know, there's, there's all these sort of uh, things that have to happen as soon as you're now a public building. And uh, once you do that, then you also become of this legal entity that now is, uh, you know, in the in the reach of, of Apple because you're no longer just a private collector. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if that also applies in Prague, but uh, interesting <laughs> to see what happens here. This guy's definitely playing with fire uh, with his website. Good luck, sir. Yeah, yes. Well, well, Godspeed, I guess. All right. Uh, let's see. It uh, looks like uh, Dan Bricklin is being interviewed again about VisiCalc. Uh, I always love to see stories like this one. Mike, uh, tell us about this one. Yeah. So um, Dan Bricklin is a, obviously, he he was one of the inventors of VisiCalc, and he is a fun, charismatic guy to talk to and to um if you have the chance to see him speak, um, he, it's definitely worth it. He's um, uh, just a, a, a general, generally a, a fun guy to be around, um, at least from from what I've seen. I know that these days he's work. He mostly works on some note taking program for iOS that's way, way, way overloaded with features. Sorry, Dan, I know you don't listen. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but and and he's done a lot of interviews over the years. Um, and what's nice about this one is like there's this. They have like a an image, for example, of it's a page from VisiCalc's seventy nine reference card, and he's gone through and and talked about all the pieces of it. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a good interview. Check it out. It is, yeah. The uh, the pull quote for me was at one point he says, uh, "I came out of the word processing and typesetting worlds where every keystroke counted." I was competing against the back of the envelope, and uh, I think that's that's really the key there. You know, we've talked about this uh, in reference to VisiCalc before on the show, but uh, you know, VisiCalc. Where it succeeded, I think, where it was the first software package to really succeed was that it it was genuinely a better way to do the same things that we'd been doing. It was genuinely better than an accounting ledger and a room full of bookkeepers. So, you know, that uh, it, it had to, that's a, that's a more difficult thing than, you know, than you might think to genuinely disrupt uh, an industry. You have to actually be better and not just, you know, like, for example, the canonical example for me is the, the Apple Newton, uh, you know, that first attempt at a PDA it was not genuinely better than a paper uh, calendar agenda book, <laughs> which at the time was a, a very refined technology. You know, the pages were standardized and, and there was all kinds of cool options and dividers and so on. Uh, the Newton, if you use that, which I made a personal attempt to for a couple of years, uh, you had to really want to use it for the sake of the technology and not because it was actually better. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> so uh, VisiCalc was actually better. Uh, so I think that's that pull quote really sums that up. Right, and, and VisiCalc, I think, legitimized the Apple II as as a um, it, it it took it from being um, an electronic hobbyist machine into a legitimate home computer, and then something that people could use in their business as well. Um, you know, Lotus One Two Three later did the same thing for for the IBM PC, and that's why you know they call it the Apple II killer app. All right. Well, that was a good chunk of news uh, for this month, and I think that about wraps it up. Uh, let's see. We don't, uh, uh, being a monthly show, we don't talk about eBay, but uh, I think we have some eBay stuff. Shall we uh, roll into that? Sure. Look, rare. Steve Jobs. Look what we found on eBay.
So this is a very interesting item that, uh, that you found, Micah. It's, it's an Apple IIc prototype. Now, that phrase gets thrown around a lot, uh, <laughs> but this one really does seem legit, doesn't it? It did to me um, when I'm looking at the... Uh... Looking at it, and there are a few tells that you, that I guess um, most Apple IIc prototypes have. One of one obvi obviously is the the lack of Apple IIc painted anywhere on it, but you can scrape that off, I think, pretty carefully these days. Uh, but the other one is the the ventilation slots along the top. Uh, there's a a little gap uh, on the second one. It's it's shorter, and you can see where there probably was meant to be an Apple logo um, badge set. Um, and on your, on your standard 2C, there's a, um, the, the key, the way the keyboard sort of butts up against the rest of the, the unit is different. Um, and if you want an example of this, there's a, a book that I, in fact, that I actually scanned a little while ago. Um, it's called the Apple 2C, uh, user's guide. I think and the photograph that they use for the front cover of that is also a prototype and it looks a whole lot like this one. So I think this is actually legitimate, which surprised me because it sold for 900 bucks. Yeah, that is just astonishing. I mean, if this thing is legit, someone got an unbelievable steal here, uh, you know, because we've seen, you know, just regular market 2Cs new in box, you know, go for $3,000 and, you know, millions of them were made. So the fact that this appears to be a legit prototype and someone got it for $900, uh, I am just floored by that. Uh, you know, when I first looked at this, my immediate thought was, oh, no, it's just one of those South American clones, right? Because there was a bunch of, uh, you know, Eastern European and South, South, South American clones of the 2C that on the outside look very much like this, uh, possibly because they were based on leaked photographs or something of the 2C. But um, uh, but then you look, you know, there's some decent pictures of the logic board, and uh, it definitely, you know, they're all Apple branded chips in there. And the other thing I thought is it might be a modern 2C board just put into one of these South American clones, because otherwise, the you know, the only other tell is is the uh, prototype Apple sticker on the bottom. But you know, you could you could bang that out in Illustrator. So. Uh, you know, but yeah, the, the 2C board does look like the prototype board. Uh, it's got the codename markings on it. What do they call it? The, um, the later one was codenamed Teddy. This one is Terry this or is something? Terry, yes. Yeah, so it's, got the, it's got the code name on there, and it's got the uh, the 83 day code uh, on there, which is very early for the 2C, so that certainly suggests the prototype. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, it seems legit, and if so, someone got an unbelievable deal. Sean, was that you? <laughs> yeah, I hope it was Sean. Deserves to go to a good home. <laughs> uh, okay, well, uh, let's see. We had Charles Mangan in our uh, roundtable for the end of the year last month, and uh, he's back in our eBay section here. Uh, what's what's he up to here, Mike? Yeah, so we know that in addition to the retro connectors that he makes and sells, he also makes miniature mm, Apple II cases, you know, the 2GS and the 2E, and he even made the Apple III. Yay, Apple III. Um, <laughs> and uh, it looks like he had a few of these uh, autographed by Waz, and he sold them on eBay for charity. And I think the auctions are all over now, um, or maybe not. It looks like, oh, no, there's, there's one of them that by the time we get this posted, it will be over. But um, if you want to contribute to one of Charles's uh, charities, I think it's probably a great cause. And the last one sold for around $255. This current one looks like it's at about 175 bucks. So uh, if you're interested in that sort of thing, um, we'll have the links in the show notes. It looks like these benefit the uh, UNC Cancer Hospitals. 
That's fantastic. Nice to see the Apple II community doing some some good works. So thank you very much for that, Charles. I think that um, that wraps up the eBay section. Yeah, and I think that uh, about wraps up our show as well. Uh, unless you have anything else you want to add, Mike? Yeah, we do have one feedback item from uh, Randy Brandt. Uh, last month he was talking about a computer called the Bosus, and we all kind of went, "What? What is that?" <laughs> And he was—he wrote in to let us know that this is—it's—it's it's a computer that when I look at it, I see the word basis, but I guess because it's a German Apple II clone, it's pronounced Basis. So that's what he was talking about. And if you search for the BASIS 108, I think you'll find all the information out about that. So thank you, Randy, for letting us know that we—that you're not crazy and you actually were talking about something that exists. <laughs> awesome. All right. Cool. Well, that, uh, that's a nice, tidy little uh, show for uh, for January of 2016. I hope everyone's having a happy new year. And uh, thanks, Henry, for being on the show with us. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, uh, until next month, I guess uh, make sure you get out there and spend some time on your Apple II in the new year. And buy some products from ultimatemicro.com. Absolutely. It goes to the Starving Henry Foundation. <laughs> my most favorite charity yes the noble cause yes <laughs> all right see you next month everybody bye everybody this has been the open apple podcast subscribe to us in itunes or visit us at open-apple.net, where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. Berlin, Mike, what's going on here? Apple II celebrities, anyway. Yeah, so this is... Uh, you would ask me this, come on. So this is geek. <laughs> this is geek. It's your item. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know.